Welcome to episode five of Fireside Chats. In this episode, I speak with one of our members of the Roosevelt Group, Stella, about her article in the winter 2023 new analysis publication titled Forget Fair Trade, How Child Labor Fuels the Cocoa Industry. I learned a ton in this conversation, and I know that you will too. If you want to read Stella's article for yourself, you can find it in PDF form at roosevelt-group.org. And as always, be sure to check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at The Roosevelt Group. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hi, Stella. Hiya. So to get us started, can you tell us where you're from, what year you are, what you study, and then I have a fun question. Okay. I am half French, half Italian, but have always lived in England. Bit basic, I know. Um, <laughs> I am in first year studying maths, but then with the add-on of like computer science and philosophy, just because. I think that was everything. Then there's that the mystery was question. Um, mystery question is, what's your favorite song right now? Favorite song right now? Mm-hmm. Um, like, what's your fixation? Um, I mean, it's been this one for a while, to be honest. Kings of Convenience, Boat Behind. Okay. That one's just a classic. Like, the nostalgia, it's gets to me mm-hmm. what like genre would you describe that as king of convenience is like soul r&b i don't know that kind of that little bubble apart nice yeah. do you do like musical stuff no i mean i'd like to dj but okay. if anyone out there wants to lend me decks um <laughs> please send them my way because yeah they're all being taken up but yeah that's my summer job is to pay for decks wow so that'd be fun wow i feel like you would make such a good dj and saint andrew's needs St. Andrews needs more female DJs. Yeah, because all the all, and most of the DJs that I know of are going to be leaving in the next like year or two years. True. So I'm like, we need to fuel that. Yeah, you got to take over. Absolutely. <laughs> um, okay, so to get into this episode, your article is all about the cocoa industry and what you call big cocoa, and how it pretends to be fair trade, meaning sustainable and ethical, but it actually is a really dark underbelly of child slavery and forced labor. So my first question is, how did you choose to write about this topic? I've actually been looking at the topic for a solid five or six years now. Um, I wrote a long dissertation about fair trade, but within the tea industry instead, um, because a scandal came up a few years ago about the Sainsbury supermarket. So this is how I came across fair trade as being more controversial than it would come across in our standard geography lessons, or because... Sainsbury's decided to drop the fair trade certification and create their own. So I started looking into the reasons why they do that, and it came out that there was a whole pattern of this ironic falling short of fair trade and accomplishing their goals um, in the tea industry. And then fast forward a few years, and I'm still coming across articles about how fair trade is not helping with the problem of child labor, not helping with the problem of wages, and so it just felt like through the Roosevelt Group I'd be able to properly dedicate some time to studying issue but apply to another mm-hmm. industry so the sainsbury's thing did sainsbury's come up with a more sustainable plan or less yeah sustainable? so this is my entire the the entire question was okay they claim that they're dropping fair trade because fair trade has got too big and too unaccountable for what's going on um and so what they did is they created they cut down all the companies that they were trading for tea with uh, and they chose three or four producers of which i interviewed two cooperatives Um, so that they could directly work with the farms and farmers to ensure that the money that they were giving as premium was actually being invested in their projects and not Mm -hmm. in some other farm on the other side of the world. 
because obviously that's a problem with an organisation like Fair Trade, despite their attempts at creating some sort of transparency, it's gotten so big that you can't guarantee that the chocolate, the premium that you're spending on a chocolate bar with one brand is actually going to end up to the farm where that chocolate was produced. Yeah. So what Sainsbury said was, hold up, let's just strengthen that relationship with the three or four producers that we do want and make sure that the money that you're paying extra for is actually going to end up making a difference in Rwanda or Kenya. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. Cool. So that's kind of, that's how you got into this. So yeah. you, would you say you're like well-versed in fair trade information? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say that people keep challenging my perception of what I think is now. Okay, for me, fair trade is kind of this very complicated, slightly... It has a lot of negative associations in my mind now, um, mm-hmm. which I think the common public isn't aware of. But people still surprise me with the questions that they ask that just show me how much I'm still missing knowledge. But that's mm-hmm. hopefully what you're always going to challenge me with. And I can leave this and be like, wow, we'll I've see. got more research to do. We'll see. Maybe so. Um, OK, so just to give those who are listening a little bit of context about Stella's article, um, Stella writes that the Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana account for 60% of global cocoa production as of 2022. Um, and during the 1960s, the cocoa industry was accelerated by paying migrants from Burkina Faso and Mali. So do we know what the cocoa industry looked like prior to the 1960s and what populations largely made up the laborers? So it was Burkina Faso and Mali immigrants who were coming in, but they were paid and it was legal work in the same way that in the UK, as of today, we have workers coming in from Romania to do with a strawberry harvest. Um, it was that kind of relationship where the, they were adult workers who were being paid because the cocoa industry was booming. The climate was perfect and they had just found some perfect strains of plants to be growing in Ivory Coast and in Ghana. And so um, the stars basically just aligned for the industry and it went through this massive surge where things were going well because money was money existed in the region. Um, and investors were willing to fuel fuel the industry by actually paying wages to their workers because they needed all that that labor to actually set up these farms. Once those farms were then established, um, and once they realized that there were some easy shortcuts to make, that's when the industry started turning dark, and pretty quickly it took, what, 10, 20 years mm-hmm. um, for the labor force to then become majorly composed of illegally imported trafficked kids Mm -hmm. um but actually before then we were already going back into this issue of slavery so it was really those 10 glory years in the 1970s 80s of the cocoa industry um where they were not that shady because otherwise before then you had the cocoa industry in south america which was fueled by the slave trade Mm -hmm. and the very far more conventional slave trade that we imagine of the end of the 19th century okay yeah, so it's kind of always been a dark industry, would you say, except for those yeah. few years. Like all those crops that then end up being imported into the West. Yeah. Um, the labor force is not being properly treated back home. Yeah, totally. So um, you state that an estimated 1.56 million children work on cocoa plantations in Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana, and that 1.43 million of them are involved in, quote, hazardous forms of labor. Uh, many of these children, you say, children are trafficked, um, and some are migrants who came with their families and then were abandoned. So obviously, this is a really tragic image of a impoverished society. How responsible for this do you think that the cocoa industry is for the lack of economic and wider functionality in these countries? 
I wouldn't say that we can attribute it entirely to the coke industry because an underlying argument of all of this is if it wasn't the coke industry, it would be another one. Mm-hmm. Um, as I was saying before, this same problem of child labour has happened in the tea industry and so we're talking about Kenya and Rwanda, um, even in Sri Lanka, or you have problems in Thailand and Indonesia with the use of children in clothing manufacturers. So I don't think any specific industry can be attributed to the problems that are existing within the infrastructure or the government's interference in the existence of child labour. Um, I think one of the problems with the cocoa industry particularly is that it's mostly... So the, this term of big cocoa, which is Nestle, Hershey, Mars, Cowboy, they are massive. Mm-hmm. And so they do have a huge power in lobbying over the governments um, that, I mean, the tea companies and... The clothes companies also have, so... Yeah, it's everything. I mean, I looked up um, when I was, like, doing a little bit of background research Mm -hmm. for this, um, how many companies Nestle, like, how many go under the Nestle umbrella? So many! And it said 2,000. Yeah. And one of them is Starbucks. And you start counting, and it's so many commercial brands. Even Mm -hmm. Cadbury's, which used to be independent in the UK, now Mm -hmm. is bought by Mondelez, and Mondelez has ties to Nestle. So they're they're still independent companies. But unless you are looking for... This is when I start talking about the bean-to-bar movement because it's... I mean, the way that they're getting away with this is just these huge economies of scale where naturally, by the scale they're working at, it's impossible to stay accountable for everything they're doing. Like... There's masses of data, there's masses of interactions, you've got so many middlemen. Where is it that you start giving responsibility to Nestle or to the people who are trading with Nestle or to the heads of the cooperatives? At some point, all of that responsibility gets lost along the line. Mm -hmm. Totally. So tell us more about what the bean-to-bar movement is. So the bean-to-bar movement is a bit of an epithet just for the idea that your chocolate is being produced by one cooperative. So... Sometimes a few more, but the idea is you can buy a chocolate bar and on the back they will tell you what farm it was produced in. So what region of the world and then more specifically the country and then more specifically. Like you can, in theory, you should be able to book a flight and go visit the place where your cocoa was made. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of companies have pretended to be in the bean to bar movement. So you've got companies mm. like Tony's Chocolate Only, which is a scam. I'm so <laughs> sorry, but their packaging is literally pictures of people breaking free from chains. It's the idea that it's anti-slavery. Whoa. And Tony's has been removed from a website called Slave Free Chocolate because of their links with companies that do and have been proven time and time again to be using it. So Tony's is a classic example of a company that started with great intentions because they were like a, a, a standard bean-to-bar movement. They started with a few farms. And then as soon as their company caught on, in the Netherlands, um, firstly, the founders left. They sold their company and, and had a great time doing I don't know what else. They Whoa. are untraceable. Because they were people. caught. I think they realized that they would just start feeling a bit hypocritical. Mm-hmm. Because there, there, there is a moment where they, were, they needed so much chocolate that they couldn't keep sending people to audit the farms that they were getting their chocolate from. And they can't keep publishing the location of these. And they can't keep creating reports that actually represent the farms that they're working with because... There's just too many. Mm-hmm. Um, and so something that some companies in the UK still do, there's one called uh, Chocolate Tree Scotland, mm-hmm. which, fingers crossed, is just going to stick with their homegrown vibe. But otherwise, yeah, Tony's just... I mean, they got a bit ahead of themselves and 
tried to bite off more they could chew, the mm-hmm. founders left. The movement lost its ethical importance. And, wow. um, and yeah, now Tony's is still f- fooling the world with this packaging that says that we are fighting against slavery and stuff. But truthfully, they can say that they are, but they're not doing anything for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also looked up... Um I looked up another one of the chocolate companies that you talk about, and I I think it might have been, how do you say it, Calibo? Mm-hmm. I think it was Calibo. And I looked up, like, um, is Calibo chocolate, or do they use child labor or forced mm-hmm. labor? And there's this part in your article where you say that they don't deny <laughs> not using forced labor and it's a kind of a convoluted sentence but then I I thought about it and I was like hmm what does that mean so I looked it up and it said like Calibo chocolate will it was something like will attempt to be forced labor free by 2025 when the original deadline was 2005 yeah and it just keeps getting pushed back I mean it feels like like the whole climate change initiatives or years just keep getting pushed back and it's like God, like, what are we doing? And to some extent, this should be less difficult to implement than some kind of climate change initiative because either you have kids working on your farm or you don't. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not a question of degrees or of subtlety or of where the impact is. It's quite simply, you can get in a car and drive down to those farms and you see children working machetes. Like, it's it's Mm -hmm. not rocket science. Um, And they've gotten away with it despite actual video footage of this happening mm-hmm. so there's a documentary that recently came out called the chocolate wars um where they two journalists and two lawyers from the states just head down start interviewing people with hidden cameras and you're simply just seeing kids from the age of eight to 14 just working wow um and when confronted with this evidence in the u.s courts they were simply told that um this happened in a country that was not the u.s so U.S. firms did not have to claim any responsibility. Mm-hmm. And that's how they can get away with statements like, we will be working towards improving it. Because in legal terms, they're not actually responsible. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty shocking. So Yeah. So that was another one of my questions was if uh, that was a Supreme Court case, right? Mm-hmm. If the Supreme Court can't acknowledge these issues or really like deal with them because it's happening in another country... Who, if anybody, has the power internationally to deal with this? Internationally, no one. Mm-hmm. Um, locally, no one. There's this, this naive idea, I think, that, you know, you can vote with your money and whatever you end up purchasing like, is going to make a difference. But realistically, I think that currently we aren't doing very well because mm-hmm. these massive firms, so big cocoa have so much money that they can spend on lawyers. So I cited just a particular example of this guy who's making more than two grand an hour mm-hmm. um, fighting against pro bono lawyers who are literally just spending their lives freely working for this. These two lawyers who spent 15 years collecting the evidence just to be confronted with this, you know, it's not the US responsibility. Like The, the jarring so reality, yeah, the jarring reality is that we just need, I think we just need more... Maybe a, a, a more positive outlook would be to say we need more people that are going to be in positions of power. Um, yeah. I think anyone here who's a, a student studying management, just if you get into a position of 
power in your firm please just do something ethical with it you know yeah. just like all the management kids literally and i know no one studies law here but if anyone wants to go into journalism yes war is far more exciting and yes there are some cases which are going to be far more personally scandalous and you, you could make a fortune from them but i think if anyone managed to publicize and make a true breakthrough with these scandals occurring in the cocoa industry or any other industry for that matter that employ child labor um if it could get published and go big, well, you've already gone halfway there. Um, because at a local level, like Fair Trade St. Andrews as a town movement is is cute and it's an honourable movement, but they're not making much of a difference. What is Fair Trade St. Andrews? It's a thing apart from the uni, a group of people who meet and discuss the fair trade um, options, I suppose. I went mm-hmm. to one of their conferences recently where they were... There's a Scottish firm which trades exclusively in ethical goods, the main one being rice, um, which was interesting. But again, it's it's small scale. And I think part of the movement is that it has to remain small scale. Mm-hmm. So unless you manage to get an entire... If, if the entire EU was sensitized to this issue and then they decided that everything that was being traded had to be small scale and ethically certified and perfectly audited, apart from the fact that it's incredibly practical... Um, You'd need something like that, but mm-hmm. it's unrealistic. Yeah, and also, I mean, if everything had to be fair trade and small scale, these massive companies with all the people working for them would see their downfall, right? Yeah, because as soon as you start decentralizing everything, apart from the fact that you do create more jobs on the ground. Yeah, true. Um, so you get rid of the middlemen, but then you have far more people who are trained to be auditors, for example, or who have the skills to then manage the technology that you need to make the data transparent, that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. if firms decided to be more more scale, you could actually train more people on the ground to make sure that things were audited properly and and the local economy would benefit. But then, yes, we'd lose the whole bunch of office jobs that we have back here. I mean, there are a number of people employed by Nestle in Switzerland. Yeah. yeah. It's huge. True. Um, yeah. Yeah. It feels like every country. Well, Switzerland, UK, US... Yeah. I guess all the other, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you, like, kind of going along the lines of these these declarations of attempting to work towards being child labor free, um, you write that in 2001, the Harkin Engel Protocol was signed, and this was an international declaration for the eradication of child labor in the major confectionery companies, which you list as Nestle, Cargill, and Mars as a few, pledged to reduce, quote, the worst forms of child labor. And those, I found this kind of funny. Those are capitalized, like capital W, capital F. Um, So what warrants the worst forms of child labor as opposed to better forms of child labor? So you mentioned previously that there was two different figures, 1.56 million kids, I think. Let me check. I think it's 1.56 work in cocoa plantations, 1.43 are in hazardous forms of child labor. So the hazardous are the ones that they consider worst forms. So the good news is that is the majority mm-hmm. of children employed, in theory. Mm-hmm. So we're still talking about 1.43 million. That should be covered by the fact that they're trying to eradicate the worst forms. Um, otherwise, yeah, worst forms is a pretty vague way of trying to quantify our revulsion against the idea of child labor. Mm-hmm. Maybe the image of a child packing cocoa beans... Once harvested, 
on a production line seems less offensive to us than the idea of a child working with a machete under the sun. Mm-hmm. But realistically, both of them still mean that the child isn't going to school getting an education or having a a chance to grow properly. Yeah. So it's another caveat that helps them get away with whatever they're doing. Yeah. Um, oh, what was I going to say? I can't remember. <laughs> um, okay, so, yeah, so were there, I feel like we already kind of answered this, but were there any legitimate or tangible solutions implemented as a result of this declaration? No. If anything, they decided to all quit fair trade. So... I cite two or three examples, I think, of Coco Plan, Coco Life. Um, basically, Nestle and Mondelez were the two main ones who decided that fair trade in itself was actually already starting to be a little bit too pricey for them. So they created their own. So you can imagine a company that already gets away with a lot, like Nestle, who decides to scrap an external certification entirely and create their own, which means that their accountability has really collapsed entirely. So their response to the Harkin and Engel protocol was the worst possible one you could imagine, mm-hmm. as in they rejected... For, for how much... I express a lot of hate for fair trade, but at least they got the issue exposed. The founding of the movement was pretty honourable, and they did do quite a lot of good work. And then, in theory, they still have a kind of third-party external judge on what is being carried out in those farms. As soon as you give that responsibility of auditing to Nestle or Mondelez or Cargill or whoever, you can be certain that they are neglecting the majority of their responsibilities in terms of ethical production. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they did nothing. So, fair trade, is this, like, it's not just an adjective, it's an organization, right? Right, Fair trade, the logo that you can picture of a little man with like green and blue, mm-hmm. that is a certification. Effectively, it's a third party brand in the same way that you say Rainforest Alliance or UTZ. UTZ doesn't exist anymore, I don't think. But um, they're third party auditors in the same way that you might see something that's audited by PwC that guarantees that the product has been harvested ethically. Okay. That also encompasses an, an element of environmental protection. But the concept of fair space trade, so two separate words, is just a generic idea that products should be traded fairly. So the price that we pay should reflect the cost of production. People should earn a minimum wage or a living wage that should give them access to basic rights. Um, so fair trade as an organization tries to encompass these principles Fairly vague principles of mm-hmm. fair trade. Okay. Um, but it's not effective, is your point. It started off in the 70s again um, in the Netherlands, I think, mm-hmm. where they would buy... It started off not with food, but artisanally produced products, uh, carpets and decorations that were handcrafted in sub-Saharan Africa. And those goods were then purchased and resold in the Netherlands um, with the idea that those artisans back home would gain from this very small artisanal trade. Mm -hmm. Caught on, and they started expanding. As soon as they started expanding, they go into fruit and veg, which has a certain element of flexibility in terms of market prices. So all of a sudden they had to go 
it was it was go big or go home. Mm-hmm. Um, they expanded. Now you get fairly traded or fair trade tennis balls, just to, Actually? Uh, to give you an idea of how huge they became. Whoa. A tennis ball has to be produced. There's something like a tennis ball is produced in 23 different countries, as in like to get one tennis ball, all the materials travel through 23 different countries. Whoa. Um, so if, if you have an idea of how you can effectively audit the ethicalness of a t- tennis ball that's being produced across 23 <laughs> different countries, like let me know. But I, I think it's already giving a bit of an idea of how how out of control something so big is. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, so you write that a conscious consumer who reads up on these companies' supply chains could be excused for believing that their chocolate was sourced ethically. I mean, easily through the seeing the fair trade logo, someone walking down the grocery store aisle sees that and is like, oh, this is like morally good yeah. to buy, right? As opposed to a product that doesn't have it. Um, so... And you say, or worse, their, quote, informed decision to purchase was helping to improve communities in West Africa. So does this imply that these companies are lying? Or, um, yeah, does, like, what actually goes to the betterment of these communities if something has the fair trade logo on it, and specifically chocolate, since that's the theme of your article? Well, to start with, have you ever gone into a shop and actively purchased fair trade? I, I don't With know. the idea that you're... Or even you Probably. go into H&M or any clothes brand and you buy the one that's sustainable. Yeah, I mean, it definitely yeah. is more of an appeal. And just the fact that they can make you make that kind of decision. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be more expensive. And it's going to be more expensive. Uh-huh. Is already, I mean, in my opinion, a bit of a... A red flag. Yeah. <laughs> um, looking further into it, the problem is they just... I think the fair trade just doesn't mean much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just... They... Look at a Kit Kat bar. On the, I think on the back of every Kit Kat bar, they have a picture of their cocoa plant in action in a farm in Africa. And it's not... It's not that they're deliberately lying. It's just the classic omission of the truth. So the case studies mm-hmm. that I'll show you, they may be perfectly valid. You could probably go down to those farms and, yes, there is two out of 550, or I'm giving a totally random number, but a ridiculous fraction, a tiny, tiny number of those farms may well have very effective um, functioning in their communities that are helped by fair trade. Mm-hmm. There is an interesting fact that actually... Um, Producers of cocoa and coffee in South America tend to reap better benefits than producers under fair trade from Africa because of the public attention that we give to preferred regions. So Hmm. consumers tend to buy coffee more from South America just because of their perception of the quality. And so fair trade is going to direct more of their premiums towards that area because just in case anyone's going to pay more attention to that, um, they want those farms to be able to demonstrate better features of fair trade so there's actually an inequality within the fair trade certification as to who reaps the benefits and who doesn't um but otherwise it's just it's it's a very large omission of the truth because for the few examples that they do give you of fair trade doing great stuff there's a lot of farms that actually even experience detrimental effects from fair trade because it you have to pay to get a certification you pay for the auditing process you pay higher cost of production because all your products have to be grown 
it's not quite organically, but in line with environmental standards. So all these extra costs of production sometimes mean that a farm that cannot succeed to sell their produce under the fair trade certification then has to gate trade. So as in they have people negotiating straight to the farm, they lose out um, and sometimes end up selling below cost of production, which is devastating for these people who then physically cannot continue with the the farming um, or cannot then meet their daily basic needs. Yeah, yeah, totally. So you also say only 10% of the profit, around 10% of the profit made off of a chocolate bar returns to the farming cooperative where the cocoa plants are grown and harvested. And that must then be split between workers and cover cultivation costs and local taxes. Where does the other 90% go? Broadly speaking, you've got the cost that goes to the supermarket. So let's just take a standard chocolate bar that you buy in Tesco's. You've got the supermarket's cost of getting that product on the shelf and just getting it from importing into the country to then onto the shelf. You've got cost of manufacture. You've got profits that go to the manufacturing company. I mean, in between this, you've also got Tesco's profits. Then you've got the manufacturing profits. Then you've got um, large percentage that goes to the middlemen. So whoever's negotiating between the cooperative and then the larger purchasing group that then sells to Nestle or whoever is interacting there is going to get a cut of the cost. Um, I mean, it goes pretty fast. Already that, and you've covered the the raw goods. And then there's obviously the fact that in the chocolate bar you've got other products getting mixed in, but Mm -hmm. a large majority is already gone. Um, That's why there has been a separate movement that has asked... So I mentioned the article, this activist called Fernando Morales de la Cruz, who's actually going to be here in St. Andrews on Friday and Saturday. Oh, cool. Um, to present a TED Talk, a little bit of a PR <laughs> <laughs> stunt there. But um, he explains how there's this possibility of creating a, a parallel movement called 10 cents per cup or 10 cents per bar, where you just we would pay an extra 10p with the idea that those 10p, you keep them together, they never get mixed in with anything else, separated, divided in percentage, given to anyone else because they remain from you purchasing it all the way to the producer and that 10p stays traceable throughout. You can ignore whatever happens to the rest of the bar but just dedicate those 10p to maximum traceability um, so they guarantee to get to the farmer. And they, the claim was that with those 10 cents, collectively you could make a, a big difference. Just the fact that you know that money is not going to be touched by anyone else throughout the supply chain. Mm-hmm. Realistically, then it's become more difficult because... For example, Starbucks was asked to consider the problem. And they said, well, already we've put up um, costs for anyone who doesn't bring a reusable cup. So you've got these kind of contrasting movements where, yeah, these firms are also having to to manage the fact that we're also asking things on a sustainable point of view, like Mm -hmm. climate-wise or quality-wise. So understandably, they they have to pick their battles sometimes. But yeah. It just yeah. shows that public attention right now is more focused on climate issue, perhaps, than social issues. Yeah, true. That's Whereas in the 70s, it might have been the reverse. Yeah. Think. Do you think that that's fair to focus more on climate than social? I think more generally it's fair that people just don't have the attention to care about everything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's, it's a big problem of our time that we are so desensitized to things that seem less personal to us just because there's so much of it mm-hmm. so I don't I don't know why I started taking this issue so seriously because it's far from 
it's not very personal to me, but I also understand people's lack of enthusiasm or anger towards this because there is simply so much to be angry about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, sadly, it is fair that... It's, it's not fair for a, a, a global company to go ignoring these issues, but in terms of the idea that public pressure can cause change, I think it's understandable that the public pressure comes and goes. Mm-hmm. For anyone who isn't involved in pressuring something for something, then you know you'd probably get on it. But otherwise, yeah, I think that unless you aren't contributing to any kind of movement, any kind of lobbying, any kind of push for improvement in any area of firms messing with our world then it's fun yeah so given that you study i'm just curious given that you study math and computer science and what else was it philosophy philosophy would do you have any interest in going into kind of this field uh oh, yes but i actually mentioned this to someone and i felt like such an imbecile because <laughs> they told me so i i argued that i would love to go into computer science so that i could improve models of data traceability So you could use some kind of tracking system, train the entire supply chain so that everyone knows how to track the provenance of products and the cost of them and the people involved in producing. I'd want to collect all the data across the supply chain so that you could know exactly who and when and how your chocolate bar was made. Mm -hmm. And then someone turned to me and was like, perfect. Actually, I talk about this woman. Her name is Ayn Riggs. And she just said, that's that's, that's fantastic, but... um, you're going to want to get paid for this, right? Yeah. I was like, well, obviously. And she goes, and, and the cost of collecting that much data and the energy involved, I mean, who's going to be paying for the technologies that are going to be... What's the guarantee that's going to be electricity back there for you to maintain all these softwares? And, and she just started stacking these problems. And more than anything else, actually, it was just this point of, you want to get paid. You want to profit from the problem. And it was this thing that, in the same way that this lawyer who's being paid two grand in an hour... Some people are profiting from the problem, just from extending the problem, just from the fact that, yeah, there's child labor, but instead of tackling that, well, let's let's just expose it. That's another way of just benefiting from the issue in this really Mm -hmm. sordid way that I hadn't totally picked up on. So it's a very cynical point of view, but I don't know. I'm I'm a bit hesitant from getting too involved just in case that kind of that that kind of situation turns against me. Yeah, totally. Do you have like any other ideas for something you would want to do post uni then concerning this? concerning anything um I think I just want to keep looking into it from a personal point of view because it's just I I I severely lack exposure to the rest of the world I mean that's the problem of doing maths and computer science that you just stay in this little bubble um and so I think it just gives me the chance to delve into some more real world issues and it means that it does give me more general conscience of the things I purchase Mm -hmm. the the advantage of this in particular is that it just makes you aware of the profound ethical consequences of everything you do Mm -hmm. Um, with that there's the then the tangent of can you ever consume ethically whether it comes to clothes or or the diet that you have Mm -hmm. or counts as ethical Um, but I guess that's not another problem entirely yeah that was actually my next question does ethical chocolate exist define ethical i mean i guess not not with the children farming it at the at the root yes 
can do are adults capable of, of harvesting <laughs> cocoa? Yes, last time I checked. But yes. like, is it? Can you go to a major grocery store and buy? chocolate that is made ethically and sustainable it's just the closest the closest thing you'll find brand wise is divine chocolate um they sell it here at taste it's a little chocolate with like a little heart on the packaging okay um oh i know that yeah yeah they're 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 pretty wide scale and they have survived most of slavery chocolate the the websites digging into into the brand um otherwise no just to make it clear if you're buying M&M's, Mars bars, any kind of Cadbury's chocolate, um, Milka, you are profiting from a child who harvested that chocolate for you. Mm-hmm. There is no nice way of putting it, but that is the truth. Yeah. Unless you're consciously making an effort to buy far more expensive chocolate. And, and, and it's... To have chocolate in the first place is a luxury, so it kind of reflects this value that we're supposed to be giving to the product. And unless you're making that choice, then yeah, you are helping this industry carry on with using kids who could be having better lives because we would be paying them the pe- their parents enough to send them to school. No, you're, you're not allowing that to happen, and you're just profiting off Charlie. Like that's the truth. Yeah. So, how can the average consumer? ensure that they're buying ethical chocolate if they like on say like on the packaging what what would it look like apart from the fact that the average consumer probably doesn't care yeah. um, but okay me and you <laughs> if we wanted to or anybody listening. Any, anybody listening you want to buy chocolate go on this website called slave free chocolate they have 30 to 40 brands on there some of them are more or less expensive some of them are more or less bougie but there is a slight improvement in the ethicalness of the chocolate. Ethicalness? Ethicality? Either way, it's slightly <laughs> more ethical um, just because someone has gone and scoured the networks of the people who work in top management positions, um, cross-referenced the farms that the chocolate is sourced at just to ensure that none of them correspond with people or known cases of child labour. In mainstream supermarkets, most of these brands don't feature the only one that I've seen large scale is divine chocolate. Mm-hmm. Um, and a way to identify pretty well if any product, so this includes coffee, includes rice, that you're buying is sourced more ethically. If they cite the region and the country where the thing has been produced, mm-hmm. then you're already off to a good start. Okay. So the same applies to coffee. If you go to a coffee product and you see that it says not only... Now there is an extra level because even Starbucks sells coffee that's just from Ecuador. But if you look into it and it says Ecuador and then it says the region, you're doing slightly better because it just means that in theory, if you were a conscious consumer who had unlimited means, you could go back and check out the country and check out the farm. And in reality, when you go to these farms, often they have spray painted a massive logo of the people that they source. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is a way of ensuring some kind of accountability in that respect if they cite Okay. specific locations. Yeah. So that actually also connects to my next question. Yay! Um, I'm good at this. <laughs> <laughs> We're just on the same wavelength. Um, so, yeah, you say that major chocolate companies are separated from the production process because the cocoa that's grown and harvested comes from sometimes hundreds of small farms and plantations under a single cooperative 
that then answer to higher powers or middlemen or the other parts of the production mm-hmm. process. Yep. So do you believe that this partially exempts these chocolate companies from the issue because they are so far removed at the corporate level? That's surely what they claim. Mm-hmm. The, the fact that they can claim that they don't operate in those countries because technically they don't. Mm-hmm. All they're doing is trading with other middlemen. They might, somewhere along the line, own those middlemen. In effect, then owning the co- the cooperatives that these these chocolates produce from. But yes, the the this geographical distinction, this distinction of trade, this distinction of the purpose of Nestle or the purpose of the cooperative means that they can get away with a lot of responsibility for the issue. Um, it's but it's something that they all do. I mean, even Nike is going to sometimes use different names to then have factories producing their stuff. Mm. So Nike will purchase from other firms who then produce the goods that they require. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's so many loopholes. There's so many loopholes. And we, people also do on a personal level in terms of money laundering, you know? It's this, the same kind of idea yeah. that as long as you can put someone in between you and the, and the crime, mm-hmm. then chances are the crime can get lost somewhere along the way or the yeah. responsibility of being yours can get lost somewhere along the way yeah. or offloaded onto an entity that doesn't exist. Wow, that is so shady. Oh, it gives me chills. But I mean... It's, it's, quite, it's quite fun, but... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just the way the world works, I guess. Yeah. Um, wow, yeah. So, okay. So would you say this is mostly... When you say the consumer, what specific regions and countries are you referring to? I think I have this perception of the the Western consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, probably influenced a bit by the yes, idea of the Western colonialism, the people who are actually going to be profiting from... the peop- Anyone that we can generally say profited off the slave trade is probably pretty likely still profiting off child labor today because of just the natural wealth that the countries have more mm-hmm. of now, which puts us in positions of making... I mean, we have choice. Mm-hmm. That's a luxury that the people who are living in those farms don't have. That's I think that's the mi- thing that makes us consumers in such a, a and like in such a label is that mm-hmm. we have this choice of where we're investing our money because we have that money to spend. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Um, okay. Well, my last question to you is: Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you want to bring up? I don't know. I feel like there's it's, it's a really mixed bag of pessimism and, and doom and gloom and like there's, there's <laughs> it's a difficult situation for anyone who who really cares to find yourself in because it just gives you so little hope. Um but when I had a similar kind of conversation with this activist, she just said, you know, you just have to be aware that the, the conscience that you have is already a step closer to making the right decision. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not to say that it makes it any better, but being aware, just being aware that the thing you're buying is not good, and making it, it is fine, even better. Please, if you just don't buy in the first place, and just spend an extra quid on a chocolate bar. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's 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 not a very happy story. No. Um, And, and the the awful thing is that yeah I've spoken about the cocoa industry but it's everywhere. It is every indi- like everything that we consume basically. 
everything I consume with the caveat that chances are if it's produced, at least for us in the EU, you're a step closer to it being produced under ethical norms. Mm-hmm. As opposed to outside the EU? Yeah. Okay. I, I think that's a, a general guideline, sure, and probably wrong in many instances, but the idea is as soon as you're trading across countries that have less of a government that imposes these kinds of structures or when you're going from any of these chocolates that we're buying, which are actually produced in Africa, manufactured somewhere else, then traded from the States back into the EU, you're just you're just mixing boundaries too much. Um, and that applies to clothes too, I think. If you're buying stuff from the EU, you're already slightly closer to getting something sustainable. And even if, just looking at it from, it from a climate point of view, the air miles and stuff, which is why I say it's a luxury good. Chocolate is not... It's not produced in our country. It's not something that comes to us naturally. So why are we mm-hmm. taking it so, treating it so lightly? And I don't know. I think I think we take things a bit too easily, and we should be appreciating value of what we purchase a bit more. So yeah. I don't see any. Personally, I don't see anything wrong with investing a little bit more money in something that's supposed to be a treat, supposed to be a luxury like chocolate. No one, yeah. no one needs chocolate realistically. No, no. and for no so one needs long, coffee. I mean, historically, it was a huge delicacy. Exactly. Until what, like the 1960s when the, yeah. the production when the, so it and then So I don't really see anything wrong with even for us just to just to take a step back and stop being so consumerist and just, you know, appreciate the little luxuries in life and mm-hmm. be dedicated to investing a little bit more in that. But that also applies. I mean, that mentality applies to clothes. It applies to technology that we purchase. Yeah. I think it's just valuing what we buy a bit more. So it's, it's again, this idea of ethical consumerism. If we are consumers and we have that luxury of choice. Mm-hmm where are we going to put our money to really value it and that earlier I said that I didn't really believe in the whole voting with your money idea because of the lack of effect it really has but if anything as a as a small personal comfort it works Mm -hmm. I can't guarantee that you're going to be able to change the world but if you want to make yourself feel slightly better that you know that you're not exploiting child labor maybe just give a little bit more time and and thought and money to the food that you're purchasing Mm-hmm. just an idea nice absolutely well Stella thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today uh, for those of you listening Stella's article can now be found on our website uh, in pdf form that's at roosevelt-group.org as always be sure to check us out and give us a follow at the Roosevelt Group on Instagram Facebook and LinkedIn see you next time bye bye